Good morning. I am so delighted to be with you today. I have known of your church for many, many years. Uh, by God's grace, I've gotten to meet some of you over the years, and that's been a blessing as well. We have prayed for you, uh, especially in these last few years. Uh, the things that you've gone through have been heart-wrenching for you, um, for those who love you from the outside as well. It has been a challenge for us as we have prayed for you, and I know these last days have also been heavy on your lives. You know, I've realized that as we think about who we are, you know, your name says that your theology is that you are convinced that God is sovereign, right? But here's the problem. What we say we believe, our theoretical theology is not always our practical theology, is it? And so we can talk a really good game when it comes to saying, here's what we believe. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that he's in charge of all things. We believe that he is good and that he loves us and he is all powerful. And then we face the meat grinder. And we feel like our hearts are being torn out from us. We feel like our lives are being shredded. And, and the, the question is, are we really convinced that God is sovereign? Do we really believe that God is in charge of all of this? And the truth is, God has a purpose for everything that he does. And there are things that God allows that we look at and, and we are staggered by as we see how it plays out in our life, aren't we? And as you think about scripture and you think about what you read and what you know, you see that there are times that God does things that are way beyond what we would ever imagine. And so today, as we come together I want to talk to you about something that I think you have heard before. I want to talk to you about some, some principles of the study of the Word of God. And then I want to talk to you about the application of that in your life. And, and so I'm assuming that knowing who have, 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 uh, have taught you before, that there are things that you're going to say, oh, I've heard this before. But if you haven't, then, then maybe it will be good to, to learn new things or if you just need to be reminded, I hope that will also help you. So I want to talk to you today about our approach to the study of the scriptures. One of the things that I do as I train pastors in Uganda and, and by God's grace around the world, by the way, I was just sharing with, with Paul this morning, since the last time I've talked to some of you, God has added not only Uganda into my potential ministry for this year, but the country of Benin, the country of Central African Republic, and the country of Ukraine. By God's grace, I will see all of those places in the next year. And <clears throat> I'm going to teach them the same things. We're going to talk about how we study the Word of God. And when we approach the study of the Word of God, <clears throat> excuse me, we talk about three things, and this is what I assume you've heard before. We would say that we believe good Bible study is built on a literal, grammatical, and historical understanding of the Scriptures. Have you heard that before? I would assume you have, and if not, then, then today will be, will be a good introduction for you. When we talk about literal, what we mean is the normal way that language is used in any dialect or any language. Every language has its approach, its structure, but it has its figures of speech. 
So when we talk about the Word of God and we say we are literal, skeptics and opponents will say, oh, you're literalists. That means when Jesus says, I am the door, you're saying he's a piece of wood. Nonsense. You know that in the language we're saying he is using a metaphor. He's using something that is a word picture that communicates something. When he says, I am the door, he's saying, I am the way in or the way out. I'm the one who who separates between those who are inside and outside, right? And we understand that's a figure of speech. And every language has that. So when we say literal, we're meaning the normal way that language works according to that language. Number one. Number two, we say we are grammatical. That means we believe that God, when he spoke his word, did not just randomly use these humans to say whatever they wanted said. But that in this process, God himself superintended the the thoughts and the words of these people so that when they spoke, they not only spoke exactly what God said, but they spoke it the way that he wanted it to be spoken. So that when we look at the scriptures, both the Hebrew and the Greek text, we are looking at the grammar that God wants to use. So that even the very singular or plural use of a word has been determined by God so that Paul can use that argument in the book of Galatians to talk about the difference between seeds and seed. And you say, wait a minute, that's pretty specific. That's exactly right. God is very specific. He is purposeful. He is intentional as our sovereign God. And he superintended the writing of Scripture to give us exactly what he wanted us to have so that we can know what God says and we can say, thus says the Lord, right? That's really important for you because if God has communicated in that way, the word has authority over our lives. So that when you come to dealing with challenges and difficulties in this world, you don't have to listen to the world around you. You don't have to go to man's opinions. You can come to the word of God and God himself will tell you what he wants you to know. And you're dealing with that in these days, aren't you? Because now you're having to say, wait a minute, what does God say about how we deal with life? How do we deal with life when our leader is no longer standing in front of us? And we have to deal with this whole transition that we never thought we'd have to deal with and don't want to deal with. How do we deal with life when, when our, our, our leadership is having struggles and, and they're not, some of them are no longer here? What do we do with that? And some people would say, run. And I say to you, this is not the time to run. This is the time to stand. But if you're going to stand, you will stand for one reason and one reason alone, and that's because your your practical theology is built on the truth of God's word, not on something else. The third part, which is where I'm heading, is history. We are historical in our study of the Bible. And I understand that Pastor Rob had had dealt with some of these things with you before. And so some of what you hear this morning may not be new to you. Some of it may. Um, But I want to connect history and theology and practical reality with you this morning. And so what I want to talk to you about is the city of Corinth. Our brother read 1 Corinthians for us this morning. We're going to come back to that a little later. But I want to talk to you about this city and, and its realities. Corinth was a very famous city in, in the ancient world, but it was destroyed in 146 B.C. by the Romans. 
And, and after it sat for a hundred years, Julius Caesar decided to rebuild it. It was an extremely important city. It sat between two harbors on the, on the south part of Greece. There was an isthmus that ran between what is known as Macedonia and what was known as Achaia. One of my teachers used to call the Achaean Peloponnesus Mickey's hand. You know, Mickey Mouse doesn't have the full complement of fingers, right? So if you look at that, it looks like this. And that's the southern part, Achaia. Corinth sat in this, in this narrow gap of land between these two harbors. And anybody that was trading from Italy or from Asia, most of that passed through there. And it was very rich and, and very powerful. And about the time of the New Testament, the estimates are somewhere between 350 to 500,000 inhabitants in the city of Corinth. Very wealthy, very rich, very powerful, and very decadent and corrupt. It was a place that people were known to be vile and wicked. In their world, to be a Corinthian was not a, a positive term. If a woman was called a Corinthian woman, she was considered to be a very wicked, evil, sinful woman. And to Corinthianize was a term that meant to live in outright unbridled sin. When we think about how life worked, nothing about the way the Corinthians lived is what we would consider to be anywhere close to biblical. When it came to male and female relationships, there was hostility and enmity, and, and it was the corruption was unbelievable. When we talk about institutions like marriage and divorce, you can understand why 1 Corinthians 7 says what it says, because in their world, to be married was nothing. It was, a, it, was a, it was a technical title, and what it actually did was if you had a legal marriage partner, it gave you legal heirs. But beyond that, the marriage relationship was nothing. So that for a man and a woman to be married, the woman became his legal wife, and then she got locked in at home, almost literally. She had very little contact with the outside world. She had virtually no contact with her husband unless it was sexual. They didn't talk together. They didn't discuss anything. She had very little educational opportunity. Many of them, if they went to a, a, a religious gathering, the men would go, but the women did not go and had very little input in their lives. Their lives were miserable. And you can understand why out of that, there grew a very strong, powerful feminist movement. And so women were looking to throw off some of those horrible restraints that they were under, and, and they, they, just, they just rankled under that. They were bitter. And, and into that world came these cults, these, these mystical religions. And in these mystical religions, some of them appealed particularly to women. And so I'll explain more of that in a moment. When we talk about, about marriage and divorce, in their world, a man could simply say to a woman, I divorce you, I'm done with you, and it was done. It depended on who owned the house. The person who owned the house could say to the one who did not own the house, you just need to go. If the woman owned the house, she could tell the man, I'm done with you, and he would go. There's a historical document that tells us that there was a woman who was marrying her next partner, and as she was doing that, she sent someone to tell her former husband she had divorced him. Say, that is crazy. 
Yeah, even by California standards, that's pretty crazy. I get that. But that's the reality in Corinth. The, the, the realities that they lived were so perverted and corrupt that in their world, men, the writers of their day, this is historical documentation, says that the men actually hated women. One of the men wrote, one of their writers said, it is a shame that the gods created the necessity for men to have sex with women in order to have children because their preferred sexual encounter was with children, typically boys, and they believed that no sexual activity was wrong with anyone unless it was with a child who did not consent. My friends... That's current thinking in our world today. That's not just there, but that's very common and it's growing. But nonetheless, that was their reality. When we think about male-female relationships, the man had the wife who was locked in at home and had very little to do with her, as I mentioned, but he had courtesans, he had these female mistresses that he would spend time with. These, These women, excuse me, these women were known in the community as as intelligent. Women, many of them had money because they were prostitutes, and, and so they were wealthy because of the funds that they gathered by their trade. They were intelligent, some of them were ed- educated, and so the men would go and spend time with them, but not with their own personal wives. When we think about the religion of their day, this was a complicating factor because we had in Corinth a temple to Venus or Aphrodite. Venus was the Roman name, Aphrodite was a Greek name. It was known that in Corinth that the temple of Aphrodite had a thousand prostitute priestesses. And at night, they would leave the temple and they would go down into the city and they would, they would practice their trade. Now, you say, how could that even be? Well, because when you think about Venus or Aphrodite, she was the goddess of unrestrained lust. She was, uh, again, she's mythical, but she was this being that, that basically was the one who was behind lust, um, any kind of immorality, any kind of improper sexual sin. It was her that was being honored in that. Not just followed, but honored. And so women who were followers of Venus or Aphrodite were those who were known for their sexual exploits in the community. And, and they were just people who prized loose morality. The women who were married that were involved in that were known as those who were very loose in their relationships and were out seeking other relationships, and and they were those who were treacherous in their relationship with their husbands. You add on top of that the the cult groups, and, and Venus, of course, had her group of followers among both women and men. But the one that that really I want to focus on is the god known as Bacchus or Dionysius. And Bacchus was the god of wine and of unrestrained excess. And he appealed particularly to women. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of his followers were women. Men were really excluded from this. And in this, you would recognize some of the the participants in this. They were known as the Amazons. They were the, the ferocious women warriors of the day. History says that Alexander the Great, in his conquests of the world, had a group of these women who fought for him in India, and they were ferocious warriors. 
what happened was the, the, the teaching and the thinking behind the Bakken religion, the, the, the belief of Dionysius, is that these women who were, were held in captivity to their husbands in their home could find freedom. And so it fed right into the feminist movement of their day. And so these gals are saying, we want out of this bondage that we are in. We want freedom. We want freedom to express ourselves, to live in this world. We don't want to be under the domination of men. We want to do whatever we want to do. And Bacchus was their ticket out. And so when they followed the worship of Bacchus or Dionysius, their worship was known as unrestrained excess. They came together and again, Primarily, this is a religion of women. This is a, a, a gathering of women together. As a matter of fact, it was so women-oriented that it was, it was said in their own writings that once a man tried to infiltrate it by dressing as a woman, and when they caught him, they tore him apart limb from limb. They are the heroines of the religion. They're the ones who were looked up to and praised in song. They believed that when they came together, there was an ultimate goal, and that goal was to unite with their God. But how they did it is fascinating. First of all, they came together, and they had music, loud music. They, at times, used alcohol to, to create the mood that they wanted. But the primary thing that they did was that it began by women who shouted certain phrases, and, and the goal was to whip the entire group into a frenzy. There were two words that they prized. One was ecstasy and the other was enthusiasm. Ecstasy was what they went through as they got themselves into this frenzy. And the goal was that emotionally that they would rise in this pinnacle of, of, of emotion until they reached enthusiasm. And the way that they knew that they had united with their God is that they believed that at that point, the God took over their mind and they began to speak in languages no one could understand. Corinth, my friends. Corinth. When we think about the book of 1 Corinthians and we think about what we read, the history makes our understanding come alive. Because when we think about what they were going through, and we look at our world today, we say, that's not just there. That's America. That's the world that we live in. This is what people prize and value and believe religious experience should be. It is not a new phenomenon that that is taking place. They experienced it. It actually, some of these thinking, uh, these thoughts came out of Egypt in terms of their thinking about the gods taking over your body and speaking of it in other languages. But when you look at the world around you today and you think about what we read about Corinth in the scriptures, what we read about Corinth in history, and then we say, where do we live? Well, we live in a world that's just like that. Maybe we haven't advanced quite as far or, or declined quite as far in our degradation, but we're headed there, aren't we? Did you know that, that in Houston is one of the largest homosexual churches in America? It calls itself a church. 
their pastor spoke at a university within 30 miles of where we lived, and this has been over 25 years ago. Their pastor and his justification for telling these students at this university that any kind of sex was allowable to them did not come from the scripture. It came from the documents from Corinth. And he said, no sex is out of order for us, but sex with children who do not want it. That's from Corinth, my brothers and sisters. The thinking about marriage, marriage is nothing. It, we, can, we can cash in our partners anytime we want. It doesn't matter. Sexual excess, no problem. Treachery in marriage, no problem. Right? I mean, we just, we're free to do whatever we want. The, the Corinthians believed that every person at some time must yield to Aphrodite. That every person would give in to those lusts, that, that passion that was driven by her. Every person. My friends in Uganda are taught from the time they're small that no man can ever be faithful to just one woman. Boys, girls, they're all taught that. My, my co-worker is actually from Rwanda. When he was getting ready to marry his wife, who's an American, his uncle told him, you can't marry her. He said, why not? He said, because when, not if, but when you are unfaithful to her, she will kill you. And he said, uncle, I'm not going to be unfaithful to my wife. He said, no, you will be. All men are like that. No man can be faithful to just one woman. I had a young woman, 18 years old, tell me, Pastor Myron, I don't want to be married. I said, why not? She said, I do not ever want to marry a man that will not be faithful to me. And in her mind, there was no man there that would be faithful. You see, this is the reality of our world, isn't it? And, and when we think about that, and we think about California, believe it or not, as challenging as life is here, California is still behind where Corinth was. Not far. <laughs> it's changing, isn't it? it? It's coming all over the world. And, and as we think about these things, Say, why is it so important for you to come and dump this garbage on us in church about Corinth? Why do we want to hear that? Well, here's my question. What did God do in Corinth? Didn't God establish a church? Do you remember in Acts chapter 18, the Lord said to Paul, I have many people here. I have many people here. My friends, you live in a society that is rushing headlong like a bunch of lemmings off the cliff of moral collapse. And in the midst of all of that, God has many people here. I believe there's a reason that God allowed Corinth to experience what he did as a sovereign God. Is God in charge of that? Could he have changed things in Corinth without Paul? Yes or no? 
I'm interactive. Are you guys okay with that? You can talk here. Thank you. God is sovereign, right? He's in charge of the nations. God could have done something different with Corinth than he did, but he didn't. He didn't. He allowed them to go the way they wanted to go. Their sinful, evil, wicked hearts went that direction, and God did not restrain them from it. But then what he did was he brought the Apostle Paul into Corinth with a message. That message was Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But what did he say? To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? Do you believe that? Is that theoretical theology or is that practical theology? Oh. See, we say it verbally. It's our theoretical theology because we know the right answers, right? Now, I want to know, do you really believe that? Do you believe... That God, the God who is able to save people out of Corinth, can save people in Los Angeles, in Redondo Beach. He can. He can. How much of a change is God able to make? Turn to 1 Corinthians. Our brother read it, but I want you to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is amazing. He identifies himself and he tells us the reason why he has authority to speak. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is a sent one, an official messenger. Somebody who has been given a specific responsibility by an authority to pass on information. And he says, I've been called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am an official messenger of Jesus Christ bringing his word to you. Who's he talking to? Are you ready? To the church of God. To the church belonging to God. The the called out ones, right? Ecclesia. The word ek is out of. And it's this group that's been called out of the world. Out of Corinth. To the church belonging to God that is in Corinth. Now get this, he's not done. Listen to their character, to the new identity that they have. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified. It's a word related to the term holy and the term saint. And what he just said to them is, you are no longer identified in the way that you were in the past. God has brought you to himself and he has made you holy. You are saints. My friends, do you know Christ is your savior today? You are a saint, a holy one of God. Your past identity was sin. And you can say, I was a sinner. I lived in my sin. I was controlled by my sin. I was dominated by my sin. But thanks be to God, I am one of God's 
holy ones. I am a saint. I have been set apart from sin to God. I have been taken from the kingdom and the dominion of Satan and been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. I was in darkness. I am now in light. I was dead. I'm now alive. I'm a holy one of God. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, what do you tell yourself? Practical theology, my friends. Do you say, there you are, you sinner. You're going to struggle through this day because of the hold of sin on your life. Or are you going to say, wow, I'm a saint. I'm a holy one of God. I have been transformed. I am no longer who I was and what I was. I'm a new creation in Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Is that you? Practical theology, my friends. Is that you? Please, is that you? Thank you. It is you. You are a new creation in Christ. You are not the same. People who are not the same don't live the way they used to live. And that's the problem, right? We can say, no, I've got my theoretical theology all in place. I can answer questions. I can take tests. And I can get the right answers. What are you living? Aren't you feeling the pain of that right now? Isn't that the reality? I'm not living what I've been called to be. I am a saint. I'm a holy one of God. Someone who's been set apart for his purposes. Let me ask you, would you run out this sanctuary for a drunken rave? Would you? Why not? Why not? It's set apart. Thank you. It belongs to God. What are you doing with your body? What are you doing with your mind? Is this set apart to God? Are you a saint? You've been set apart to God. Saints put to death the old life because they've been made holy. We reject the old way and we're choosing the new way. Why? Because we died to sin. How can we live it any longer? You say, but pastor, this is a lifelong battle. Yes, it is. But saints fight the battle. Saints fight the battle. The scripture was written to people that had problems with sin, right? 1 Corinthians was written to people that had 12 specific problems that had to be addressed in the letter. They were a mess. But wait a minute. At the beginning of the letter, what does he say? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. I'm about to tell you these 12 different things God wants you to know about how messed up you are and how much you need to change. But you are saints you are saints. See, saints are not yet perfected in practice, but we are perfected in position. Who you are in Christ makes all the difference. And so if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, you are a saint. You may not feel it, you may not be living it yet, but that is your true identity in the heavenly places because Ephesians 2.6 says that by the mercy and the grace of God, you were taken from death to life and you were seated at the Father's right hand in Christ in the heavenly places now. That's who you are. 
You're a new creation in Christ, seated in Christ at the Father's right hand, and you're looking at this world right now, your practical reality, and saying, wow, as a holy one, seated at the Father's right hand in Christ, that was wrong. That thinking was wrong, those words were wrong, those actions were wrong, and I can't stay there because I'm a new creation in Christ. I will fight the fight. I will follow Christ. I will learn to put to death those old things. I will reject those things because those no longer define who I am as a believer in Christ, a saint. God says this, my friends. It's there in your text. Do you have a Bible? What does it say? To the church of God, that is in Corinth, verse 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. See, yeah, but this is Corinth. I mean, they're not like everybody else, are they? I mean, aren't they kind of one of those churches that's out there? Look at the rest of the verse. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. They are one with every other believer in Christ that has ever lived, including you and me. One body. We're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 12, right? One body. Universal. Them, those people, those wicked Corinthians are saints and they're one with every other believer in Christ no matter where they are in the world. How would they ever live this out? Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, we typically think of it as God's favor, particularly favor that we did not deserve. But there's another way that grace can be understood here. This statement that is made here is actually expressed in the form of a wish, of a, of a, of a proclamation of a desire for God to do something in their life. And this can be translated in a way that basically grace means not just unmerited favor, but grace means May God give you the desire and the power to do his will. Do you need that? I need that. I need that grace every day. My friends, grace is not passive. Grace is active. Aren't you glad? God's sovereign grace chose us before the foundation of the world. Before there was a a creation By grace, God established a relationship with us, right? And then he determined to make us like Christ. That, my friends, is election and predestination. Those get confused. Don't confuse them. Election is the determination of a relationship, and predestination is the determination that God is going to take those he elected and make them like Christ. That's what he's doing in your life right now, my friends. He's making you like Christ. Jesus learned obedience in practical realities as the God-man through what he suffered. As you suffer in this world, you will determine whether or not your theoretical theology is real by how you live, and your practical theology will be determining the realities of of your character. So God wants to make you like Christ. Jesus suffered at the hands of a godless world, right? You're going to face those things. And if you are convinced that the sovereign Lord is at work and and he is at work in you, you're going to say, Lord, thank you 
that by your grace, you have provided everything I need. Are you one of those people that says, oh God, I sure hope you give me what I need to handle this. That would not be biblical, by the way. Biblical theology says, oh Lord, thank you. I have everything I need in Christ to be who you want me to be and do what you want me to do. That would be Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, right? That in Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Is that true for you? Do you know that today you have everything you need to be who God wants you to be because you've been joined to Christ and to do everything God wants you to do because you've been joined to Christ? You may not understand all of that yet. You may not have learned how to practice it yet, but everything you need was given to you at the moment you placed your faith in Christ, which is why the gospel is so important. Because if if you get the gospel right and you understand that and, and you place your faith in Christ, at that moment, you are joined to him by the Spirit of God. That is true spirit baptism where you're immersed into Christ and everything that is his is given to you. And now for the rest of your Christian life, you'll be learning what he's given you and how to use it and how to live that out in daily life. And as you do that, you'll do exactly what Romans 8 says. You're going to become the image of Christ. The firstborn among many brothers. God incarnated himself in Jesus. Where's Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. How are people going to see him now? And the answer is, it's you. You are the incarnation of Jesus. You are the one God wants to show himself through. You are a saint, a holy one, set apart to God for his purpose of making Christ known and hence making the Father known in this world. God wants to make himself known. How is he going to do that? Through people that he saves by his grace and empowers by his grace and equips by his grace to carry out his work of grace in sharing the gospel and discipling people as followers of Jesus. That's you. Grace to you. Or may you know the grace and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not from Paul. It's from God. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus. Now remember who he's talking to. This is the Corinthians. Starting at the end of this section, he is going to unload this massive truckload of stuff on them where he's dealing with their sin. But he starts with this. I give thanks to my God always for you. He didn't say, oh, Lord, what have you done? Why did you give me this miserable bunch of people that I have to deal with? No. I thank God for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Oh, there's our hope. That when God saves you and joins you to Christ, his grace is at work in your life and you are going to be transformed by that grace. Confidence, God is going to do his work. It's not without its battles, right? Corinth had their battles. They had to deal with sin, but God was going to do his work. (coughs) By the way, notice the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. A dear brother of mine back at home, when I first met him, he said, don't talk to me about the Bible. 
I've got my ideas about it. I don't like people trying to convince me of things that I don't, don't agree with. Don't ask me to go to church. I'm a loner. Just, you know, you can talk to me, but don't, don't push me. Within three weeks after studying the scriptures, he said, let me see if I've got this right. God is righteous. He's perfect in his righteousness, but we're sinful. We're unrighteous. God cannot accept us because of our sin, and he must judge us, and there's no hope for anything that we can do to gain acceptance with him. But then God in his love joined himself to us, took on humanity, lived a perfect life, died in our place, was buried and raised again to new life, proving that the payment was made. He ascended back to heaven. He's seated in heaven now. (coughs) And if I believe that, and I receive that payment for myself, I'm joined to him. I'm a new creation in Christ, and everything changes. I said, yeah. He said, I got it. And his life changed. He began attending Bible study with me, uh, with another group of people. Eventually, I said, you know, you'd really be encouraged at church with the people there. He started coming. God started growing him. He became a right-hand man. He just died a few months ago. In his Bible, his bookmark, he wrote on it early on, I am in Christ. And whenever he struggled, whenever he had challenges and difficulties, he'd open it up and he'd pull out that bookmark and he said, no, I know who I am. My friends, practical theology. Are you there? Are you convinced that you are in Christ? Are you convinced that the sovereign Lord of the universe has called you to be his own and his grace is at work in your life and he has given you everything that you need. Verse 5. Here's how his grace was seen in them, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) The Corinthians? Are you serious? I know the rest of the story. I know the book. I've read it before. How can he say that God is going to sustain them guiltless? And the answer is, he's not talking about their daily life problems and struggles. He's talking about the fact that when they placed their faith in Christ... They were declared righteous by God. My friends, that's what it means to be justified. The judge, God himself, looks at us and he says, you're guilty. And we say, I agree. I deserve your condemnation. I can't do anything to receive your, to, to gain your acceptance. The only hope that I have <coughs> is that you paid the penalty for me. When Jesus took my place, he died for me. And I believe that and I receive that payment. Thank you. And at that very moment, God said, as the judge, I declare to you that I see you as righteous in my eyes. That, my friends, is justification. The judge declaring you righteous. Not saying that you are righteous because you're not, but declaring that he sees you as righteous. That is the only means that you can be accepted by God. Anything else is you trying to do it on your own. He can never accept that. You have to be as perfect as God to be accepted. The only way we have the perfection of God is that God gives it to us as a gift in Christ, right? And so that's why he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We know that. Verse 21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. My friends, you become the very righteousness of God at the moment you place your faith in Christ, which is why Paul can say to them, God is going to sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have sinned. You have to overcome the struggles with sin that were yours in the past. That's not how God is looking at you as the person struggling through your sin. He's looking at you in Christ as a person who has been redeemed and in that redemption joined to Jesus so that God sees the righteousness of Christ in you right now. Isn't that good news? My dear friends, that would be the gospel. Good news. That the living God who rightfully should condemn us all and send us to hell for all eternity, has given himself to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be forgiven and brought into a perfect eternal relationship with himself of absolute righteousness in Christ. That, my friends, is why you can live today without being crushed by the struggle with sin. Because if you're on your own and you have to atone for yourself, you'll always be weighted down by the struggle of your sin. Now listen, God tells us to kill sin, to put it off, to put it to death, to do away with it, and so we have been given a responsibility for our progressive sanctification. But the point of this is, the reason that you can grow is because what God has told you is, I want you to to look, okay? Look into the heavenly places. That would be Colossians chapter 1. Do you remember that? Is that in your Bible? If then you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. What's the next verse say? Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Wait a minute, what just happened? He said, you have been raised with Christ. How did I get raised with Christ? Well, I died with him first. Remember Romans 6, that that we were baptized into his death? It's not talking about water, my friends. It's, It's a spiritual transaction. At the moment you believed, you were joined, immersed into Christ forever, and you were transformed. You died to the old life. You died to your desires. You died to your rights. You died to all those things that controlled you before. You don't know it yet. You don't feel it yet, but it's true. You've been transformed. And now you have been empowered to live a new life, the life of Christ in you that is able to please God. And so because of that, we acknowledge our death to sin. And we acknowledge what he's done for us. And we delight in that. And we say, Lord, thank you. I don't have to live that old life anymore. I don't have to say yes to all those things I said yes to before. And as a matter of fact, I can choose to say no to those things. And by the empowerment of your grace, you are transforming me so that I can live that new life. My friends, that is hope, not only for eternity, but for today. And God's ability to transform you and make you like Jesus. Not just in your theoretical theology, not just in the words that you say, but in the reality of your life, in the inner person. That's what he was doing to them. 
You're not lacking any gift. You have everything you need. You've got all the, all the knowledge. You've got all the, the gifts that God was giving at that point. But the real issue is that the greatest gift you've been given is Christ himself in you, transforming you by his spirit. You say, well, how could, how could anybody ever live this? Who could pull this off? Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's work, my friends. It wasn't your idea to be saved. It wasn't my idea to be saved. It was God's idea to save us. And so by his grace, he saved us. By his grace, he's transforming us because by his grace, he wants to show himself to this world. And he has chosen to give us the opportunity to join him in that work and to go along with him in the work that he's doing, which is why Galatians says that we are to walk in the Spirit. Some have said, keep in step with the Spirit. It's moving in the direction the Spirit of God is moving as he grows us in our likeness to Christ. That's what he's doing. And so you say, Lord, why are you letting us go through this? Well, God wants to purify you. He wants to make your theoretical theology, your practical theology. He wants to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. And it's through your suffering and your struggles and your response to that that is is living to honor God rather than just do what pleases you is going to reveal Christ in you. He's going to show you that though you live in central Corinth, California, God has power to transform people around you. How great is that power? Chapter 6. Chapter 6. 1 Corinthians. Just in case you didn't remember this, hadn't read it for a while, I just want to encourage you with the power of God to transform life, even here. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. There are actually two words there. The ESV did not do us a favor here. It it lumped them together. It used the dynamic equivalent. Uh, It actually uses two words. One of them is the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. The other is an active partner in a homosexual relationship. It lumped them together, and I understand it's trying to give you the idea, but you need to be very clear. The Greek world is very specific on this, and we need to be aware of that as well. So it says, these people who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that's those who speak evil to others, nor swindlers, that's those who cheat others out of, out of things, will inherit the kingdom of God. You say, yeah, we got that. We understand that. We, we know No, wait, there's more. That's not the end of the story. Verse 11. And such were. Past tense. Oh, that's grammar, right? We are grammatical in our study of the scriptures. Past tense. Such were some of you. That was your past. That was your old identity. That's not who you are now. You've been transformed. Such were some of you. But... That's also grammar. Strong contrast in that little word. You were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were defiled in this world. You were polluted, but you were cleansed. You were worldly, you were profane. That's what common is, that profanity, the profane is what's common. What is common is, is, is opposed to what is sanctified, what is set apart. And so he says, you were sanctified, you were set apart, you were, you were made God's holy ones. You were justified, you were declared righteous before God, absolutely accepted before him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Who is that? Those who were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. You were, but not anymore. You have been changed. Does that excite you? Do you realize what that's saying? There is hope. First of all, for me, because I was one of those. So were you, if nothing else in your heart, if not in practice. That's who we were. But we were changed. My friends, if God can save me, he can save anybody. If he can save you, He can save anybody. You are not saved because of your goodness. You are not saved because of how good you would be after you were saved. You are not saved because of anything about you. This is all about God. God is showing that he wants to take people who don't have anything to offer and and do amazing things through them. We find that in 1 Corinthians also. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 again. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. (laughs) Here it is. God's election. Are you ready? But God chose, God elected what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There you have it. You weren't saved because of you and your goodness. You're saved because of God and his goodness, God and his grace, and God and his desire to take weak things and shame the world and show that it's actually God that is the one doing it and not us. So that's how I know I fit in. God took something weak and gave me something worthwhile himself. And he changed my life. And he's given me a voice to speak for him. And I don't know what he wants to do with you, in terms of the actual outworking, but I do know this. If you belong to him, if you're in Christ, you have a purpose. 
a sovereign purpose, a purpose of grace, a grace that is powerful and real, and God is wanting to use that in your life, and he's wanting to use it right here at Redondo Beach at Sovereign Grace Church, right? And so <laughs> you're getting taken through the meat grinder, and you're thinking, my heart is, is torn and broken, and how can we even do this? How can we endure this? And the answer is, by the grace of God, by the grace of God. He has given you what you need right here, right? You have this amazing treasure, the Word of God, to guide you. You don't need the world to tell you what to do. You don't need to follow the ideas of people. You need to surrender yourself to God through His Word and say, Lord, do your work here, and by your grace, purify us, strengthen us, raise us up, and use us as a voice in this community to present the gospel to people and give them the hope that they, too, can be transformed by the grace of God. What an amazing gift we have, right? Are you good with that? Are you excited about that? Are you ready to go talk to somebody? I hope so. I hope so. Because if you've been given this great gift, and I've been given this gift, shame on us for being quiet, right? People need to know this. You know, I've never liked high-pressure salesmen. If you're a salesman and you're a high-pressure guy, I'm sorry for you. Um, you make a lot of enemies that way. But I believe if you have a good product, that product will sell itself, and I don't have to pressure people. I just show them the product, and the product works. The best way to show the product is a transformed life. If God is transforming your life and you're excited about that and he's working your life and, and doing things to make you a new creation and he, you're not who you used to be and he's setting you free from that stuff, you're going to be excited about that and you're going to want somebody to know. So maybe we need to start with, do you understand the gospel and have you truly received Christ as your Savior or do you still think it's up to you? Because if you think it's up to you, you're hurting. And the only way for you to be rescued is you got to realize if you're not as perfect as God, he cannot accept you. And the only way you can be as perfect as God is he has to give you the gift of righteousness, which is found in receiving his gift in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way. And when you receive that gift, everything changes. And now God's at work to transform you. And by his grace, he will do that. Now, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to eat, right? You have to take in spiritual food. And so it's typical for us as Christians to say that we have three enemies. Have you heard this? What are they? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? So here's the challenge I see. Number one, my flesh is the biggest problem I have. My old sinful self wants to dominate and rule. It still wants to think wrong things and go wrong ways. I have to fight that all the time, but I fight that by the grace of God and his provision for me in Christ. Knowing who I am in Christ is my hope. But now I have the world. The world's all around me. I can't get out of it. I'm stuck here. And the world is just filled with temptations, right? It's just calling to the flesh. It's appealing all the time. And so here's how I see this. The world is the buffet that my flesh feeds on. Does that make sense? But there's one more connection. How's the devil fit in? The devil puts the food on the buffet. That, my friends, is California. That's the world we live in. You live in one of the most amazing world buffets ever. Climate, wealth, opulence, luxury, leisure, opportunity. 
And in that, Satan has placed before you this incredible flesh buffet that continually calls to you that says, feed on me, feed on me. And God is saying, you're a saint. Put that away. You died to that stuff. Stop listening to your enemy. Listen to God. And, and take in the truth so that you love the truth and you love transformation and you love what God is doing to grow you. When you love that more than you love the world, this church is going to be what God wants it to be. Unfortunately, you're dealing with realities of people who have loved the world and not the Lord. And so how's that going to change? The answer is you in the pew. Just like your leadership. They, they have to be leading the way. But I encourage you, my dear friends, this is your answer. You need to know it. But it can't just be theoretical. It has to be practical, real theology, lived out day by day, moment by moment, trusting the Lord, believing Him that what He says is true, so much so that you will follow Him when He says it, even though it doesn't go along with the world. Amen. Right? Can we pray? Let's pray. What a delight, Father, to be here with these dear people, your people, your saints, people that we have known about for many, many years, people that we've heard about, people we've prayed for, people that we've agonized with through the, the difficulties they've gone through, and now, Lord, the opportunity today just to come and to be with them and, and to seek to do as the Apostle Paul said, Lord, to, to come and share some spiritual gift that we might be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. And Lord, I'm encouraged by them. I'm so thankful, Lord, for, for what you're doing in their life. And Lord, I believe that it is only by your grace and your work in them that this church will stand. And so, Father, I ask that you would do great things here, not for my sake, but for yours and for theirs. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them by your grace, that they would know your grace and your peace, that they would understand your empowering work in their life, that they would not give up, that they would not lose hope, that they would believe you, that their, their practical theology would be aligned with their theoretical theology. Help them, Lord, to live moment by moment, day by day, with the confidence that you are at work and you're doing something good, even though we don't see it, and even though at the time it just really hurts bad. Father, thank you that if you could work and save people and build a true church in Corinth, you can do it here. And so, Lord, encourage these dear folks. Help them to delight in the gospel and the truth of it. Help them to be growing in the reality of it. Help them to be understanding its practical, transforming, gracious work in their life. And then, Lord, help them to just keep offering that to the people around them. Help them to be like Paul, Lord, who hasn't gotten distracted in all the other junk. There's so much trash that the Christian world has gotten distracted by in the last few years, Lord. Help them to put that away not to get caught up in those worldly things. Help them to focus on Christ and Him crucified. And Lord, do your work as you, as you grow them in Christ, as they take on His likeness and image, and then as they proclaim your word. Lord, may you be pleased to use them and to grow this body in your likeness and then use them in this place that the truth of Christ would be known. Lord, our world is, is killing itself on, on sugar. Um, these things that are called Christianity, and, and are so empty and so worthless. Lord, help these dear folks not to get caught up in the, in the foolishness of, of the paganism that is filling our world. Lord, so many churches today want to pattern themselves after Corinth in their excesses and their, their wildness and their, their 
energy and their enthusiasm and all those things, and we see them trying to accomplish the same thing, telling themselves that when you take over, that they will be drunk and that they will speak in languages nobody can understand. And Lord, it's just Corinth. Set these dear people free, Lord. Help them not to long to be like Corinth. Help them to long to be like you. And so, Lord, I commit them to you and to your grace. Thank you, Lord, you began the work. You will perfect it. Lord, perfect it here. Show that it's you and your power and your word that you are using that this place would indeed be a church that represents you. Saints, Lord, holy ones, those who live for you and are filled with joy and delight because it's you that is doing the transforming work, we pray. Amen.